You're listening to Trek FM. Oh, on the Starship Enterprise, there's someone who's in Satan's guise. Whose devil ears and devil eyes could rip your heart from you. Hi, and welcome to Women at Warp. Join us as our crew of four women Star Trek fans boldly go on our bi-weekly mission to explore our favorite franchise. My name is Andy, and thanks for tuning in. Today we have Jera. yoo <laughs> And Grace. Hey, everybody. And we have a special guest today, Angelique. Hi, I'm Angelique Roche, a contributor for Black Girl Nerds and a huge fan of the most amazing Star Trek character ever, Ahura. Yeah, You're in so good company. today we're going to be talking about Hura, which is awesome. Um, but before we get into that, we want to remind everyone about our Patreon. You can support us um, by going to patreon.com slash women at warp, doing a small monthly donation. Really helps us um, do a lot of cool things, including go to cons, upgrade equipment, you know, cool stuff. So feel free to go do that. Um, and yay, go Patreon. But today we're going to be talking about Hura, uh, basically the original badass of the galaxy, and I'm excited to talk about her. I thought we could maybe start with everybody's first impressions of the character and kind of our feelings about her overall, and then we could start going into some of her important original series episodes. Angelique, since you're our guest, would you like to start? Uh, absolutely. So, little known fact about me, uh, I started watching Star Trek because of my mom watched it when she was a kid, um, and she kind of handed down this big image of Uhura to me before I even kind of saw the show. And so before I got the chance to think that she was kind of a rock star, I already thought she was a rock star. And so just this really smart, intelligent, I know hundreds of languages, you know, critical to every single mission woman who was also the woman of color on the show. Uh, It was just like really key to being able to see this different, unique character on TV because she was one of a kind at the time. Like, I I don't think anyone can dispute that. She was the first. Um, It's just really influential in giving a great image to women of color, but also um, just over the years still kind of went up the ladder too. Um, so my first impression of her is just like, how can I do that? How can I, how, how can I, how can I make that happen in my life? And also how can I look that good in a short skirt and a pair of black boots? Years of dance training, apparently. <laughs> years and years. Um, yeah, I mean, I had a similar reaction to her, although I started just a few years ago. So I saw first saw her in like 2014 or something. So I didn't have that background. But I do remember the first time I really noticed her was when she has the singing scene that we'll talk about more with Spock. And I was like, Nichelle Nichols might be the most beautiful woman I've ever seen. She makes everyone around her look like garbage. Um, And then that kind of like, just went on from there. I just was really impressed with how beautiful and competent she was and just radiant really well for me my first introduction to Uhura was seeing her just as part of the cast that image of the entire crew like gathered on the bridge and her being the one that really her and Sulu being the ones that really stood out to me like wow there's a little bit of there's a there's a little bit of everyone in this crew how cool is that and it was just that kind of iconic image of oh, these are these people who go into space and everyone is welcome here. And she always just had that, before I even knew of her as a character, she always just visually spoke of that nature of unity. And I, I always honestly saw that as, well, I guess that's why people like Star Trek because everyone's welcome there. And then I started actually watching the show and just being enamored with her excellence and the fact that she is just the bridge boss. Let's face it. <laughs> Yeah, when I first started or became aware of her, um, I was a kid watching TNG and my dad uh, had grown up on the original series and, you know, got we got some episodes on VHS. And so I had kind of a random smattering of episodes and 
I honestly took Uhura very much for granted because I was like a 10 year old kid who didn't know anything about really like the history or how big of a deal Uhura was. And so to me, she um, came across as a cool character who was very uh, dignified and poised and intelligent. Uh, but I didn't totally recognize her significance beyond that. And I probably would have been one of the people who agreed with the comment that, you know, at times she felt like a glorified telephone operator uh, because mm. I didn't see that her presence there was so much more than that. And um, yeah. so, you know, upon watching more and having seen more of her key scenes and heard about her influence as uh, a role model, and how much she had to fight for every line that she had. Um, I've been more and more just in awe of how amazing she is. Mm. She's one yeah. of those characters who you like her more the more you find out about her. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think she's one of those characters that you associate very heavily with the actress as well. Oh, definitely. I feel, oh, I feel yeah. like... She- well, and Nichelle Nichols had a lot to do with how Uhura actually played out. Um, much like how Leonard Nimoy came up with moments for Spock that became iconic and kind of informed mm. Vulcan development, uh, Nichelle Nichols was also very heavily involved in in character moments for Uhura that she felt very strongly about. So I feel like we would, if there had been a different actress, I don't feel like it would have been quite the same, and I don't feel like mm. it would have been as much of an impact if we hadn't had such a strong woman behind the scenes as well. Yeah. And it's really interesting to me, um, especially about what you just said about the, the, and that's such a, that's such a a key part to her story um, that when you watch it for the first time, you never really think about it. Um, Particularly when I was a little girl, I never would have thought she was a glorified telephone operator, but I can see where an experienced actress who was really serious about her craft could get so frustrated and you never really know like how much you're influencing the rest of the conversation going on and how much of an impact um she had because she's kind of in this microcosm right she's in this little bubble of I'm I'm fighting as an actress for the things I'm doing um but you know I don't know what the world would have been if she wouldn't have stayed on the show and she wouldn't have been as strong as she was and had shown up is what we is what a lot of my friends uh, would say as a, a real person, a real human um, through her character fighting for those moments, you know? Nichelle Nichols truly is the patron saint of patient, headstrong TV actresses. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Make a votive candle for that. Yeah, and I just want to clarify that. So that, um, that actually is a quote from her from an interview yeah. about how she felt about the character. And we'll talk more about, you know, why she wanted to leave and ended up not leaving. But, you know, because all of her other lines kept getting cut. So she said, you know, she was really tired of just sitting there and saying hailing frequencies open all the time. But that... She also had quotes where she really recognized how important um, even just being there was. So in a Starlog interview in 1992, she said, Uhura represented womanhood and the breakthrough of crushed racial representation. She represented dignity and intelligence, and no one can take that away from her or me. Yeah, Yeah, and I mean, part of the reason that she was so frustrated is because uh, Gene Roddenberry and DC Fontana were trying to write stuff for her. So they would have drafts where she and Chapel and even Rand would have heavier and more interesting parts and more lines and she would see that and then the final draft would come out after all the notes and after, you know, NBC get involved and she would just see her parts pared down to hailing frequencies open. And it's got to be especially frustrating to think, I can see what this character could be and I even see how hard they're trying to make it that, and we still quite can't quite make it work. Well, and I think that speaks, obviously, I think, I don't think anybody's very surprised when I say this. I think it really, again, speaks to the fact that it was 1966. Like, the country is is dealing with a lot at this point. You're, you're dealing with representation, but you're also dealing with a lot of really concrete and ingrained stereotypes about what women of color and women in general, let's be very real, women in general on TV are supposed to be. And it's it's a really unique thing that, who knows, like if she hadn't been as headstrong as she was, if Gene Roddenberry hadn't fought as much as he did, and Fontana hadn't pushed as much as they did, 
who knows what the image of women would be on TV because then you wouldn't have had Mae Jiminson looking at Ohura on TV going, I can do that. I can totally do that. I can be in space. That's what I'm going to do. And now there's this real life example of a woman of color in space. And it's just really interesting in that, and and I've said this to folks before, because I'm a hardcore feminist. I work for a woman's organization. And one of the questions I got asked when I said I was going to be on the show is, well, why was she always prancing around in a short skirt and, you know, looking effeminate? This is, you know, the 23rd century. Like, why is this happening? And I was like, it was one of the first times in history where women of color were allowed to be sexy on TV as well, um, which is a really strong statement in that it, it was, a, it was, it marked a change. It marked something that um, Michelle was actually comfortable with. And I think was absolutely wonderful. And just seeing how many different stereotypes she broke. Yeah, absolutely. Like I know we're not going to get really into the movies, but um Uhura in the JJ verse has been criticized for having a lot um, of focus on her relationship with Spock. Um, And certainly I think it's fair to critique the reduction to that. But um, a lot of people pointed out that Uhura in the original series didn't get to even really have love in that way. And so there Mm. were still um, these restrictions. But I think you're right about, um, you know, the appearance uh, issues. She said in an interview in 1987 with Starlog, the quality of Uhura's character was such that you could admire her on the one hand as a woman of strength, courage and compassion and yet she was a female female i mean she had legs and boobs and high cheekbones and a little waistline and different hairdos i don't think she's diminished by a short skirt boots and jade earrings yeah Yeah, and and if you haven't read it i would recommend people tracking down um nichelle nichols's autobiography beyond Hura because it's a great read um she actually talks about how she understands why people might have a problem with the miniskirt but she herself in the context of the 60s, to her, the the miniskirt was a, a symbol of sexual liberation, and she embraced it. So I'll, although I think there can be legitimate problems with having, you know, the miniskirt on the bridge, um, and sometimes visually I think that there are problems with it, I can understand how the context of the 60s adds a lot to the history of, of the, what the miniskirt meant on Star Trek. Absolutely. And just for the record, I kind of love the fact that in the movies, Ahura has a relationship. I think you're absolutely right. Um, she finally had an opportunity, but I also I'm, I'm kind of a fan of Spock Ahura. I think it's the two smartest people on the ship. It's pretty amazing. Power couple. We'll definitely be talking Spock and Uhura because um, re-watching some of these episodes for Uhura moments made me realize how much chemistry they had. And how much I wish it had been explored a little more. Yeah, so that's kind of a background of Uhura as in general. But when we were thinking about Uhura episodes, and we put out a call for people on our Facebook to tell us what they their favorite Uhura moments were, that's when we realized, and I mean, I knew this, but it, it becomes really clear that unfortunately she didn't have an episode. She didn't have an episode in the original series that really centered around her as the main character. But she does have a lot of episodes where she has amazing moments. So we're going to go through some of them and talk about what we like and maybe stuff that could have been done better and just our feelings about it. So the first one that came up for me was in The Man Trap. So this is early. And Mm. I want to start here is because of Spock and Uhura. Spock and Uhura have a really beautiful scene in this this episode where they have kind of a flirtatious moment. It's a really cool scene. I, and I love the lines. It's like, tell me how your planet Vulcan looks on a lazy evening when the moon is full. Vulcan has no moon, Miss Uhura. I'm not surprised at all, Mr. Spock. It's just this lovely her being so romantic and him being so logical and like how that could conflict, but also how kind of it's so nice to see them interacting together. How much they play off each other. Exactly. Like, yeah. It was also produced later. So even though the man trap actually ended up being one of the very first episodes aired, it was produced later. So they actually did get a joke in there about how Uhura is so sick of saying hailing frequencies open. I mean, it was produced, I want to say seventh or eighth somewhere in the, 
the production order. So like already by not even halfway through the first season, she was already bored of saying hailing frequencies open. Yeah. And you know, the relationship between Spock and her, I think in that show was really great. But one of the other things I think was kind of another thing to point out here. And we go back to the conversation about Ahura never really being having this opportunity to have love on the ship. Um, It's also how they kind of blended that into the show um, a little bit on this one. Yeah, so just as an aside, in case people ha- don't remember this episode, this is the one with what I like to call the salt monster. But we do get to see, like, ev- I mean, we have the kind of traditional all the men see the woman that they think is the most beautiful, but we do get to see Uhura, Uhura get some some fun times with a, a good-looking man. Yeah, he was very, like, I remember seeing that episode for the first time, and I was like, oh, Hi. Really? La. Wait, are you speaking Swahili? Oh my! Like, it is a really, it's a unique moment, I think, in all of Star Trek, though, because even, like, it is a big deal for a horror, but it's also, like, a big deal for a woman who is a character on Star Trek to be falling for someone is not a member of, like, who is, I mean, yes, an intent for all intentional purposes, the salt monster is pretending to be a member of the crew, but it was like this new person being introduced and there was flirting that was directed at a woman that wasn't Kirk. It was kind of awesome for a second. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Everybody gets to flirt now. (laughs) (laughs) Not to mention this is um, one of the instances that we see Swahili being used, which Mm. I think is really cool. Uhura has a background in Swahili. She speaks Swahili um, and a couple episodes her name is from Swahili both her names so I I mean it's the first time we really get to see that play out and I think it's really cool I also think it's really cool that it's an actual sentence that actually makes sense in Swahili (laughs) (laughs) it's not just words thrown together um, which actually shows some really good intention in the character development I think particularly and I always and I always go back and you mentioned that Ahura's name means freedom which is also, again, just going back to the importance of her character, but then also the respect in a time and age where people like you need to speak English, but in a time of age where we're like, no, we're going to speak this language because she's a linguist. That's, that's what she does. She knows other languages, and we think she's an important character enough to speak a language that's not English to her. Um, and she is proud of her history and mm-hmm. there's uh, you know there's another episode where we see her quarters and we see sort of like little touches of her culture right the next one we have is Charlie X which we've talked about Charlie X before because DC Fontana wrote it and it has one of Uhura's most iconic moments I'd say which is her singing mm-hmm. with Spock on his Vulcan heart which was Originally Fontana's idea, but Gene Roddenberry actually added the song, and he actually had to fight for it because the network people were like, this isn't a space musical. We can't have music. And he was like, this week it is. Come on, man. They're in, they're in their recreation room, like soldiers sing. And he was like going back to his time in the service. It was like when we had our time just hanging around, somebody would pull out a guitar. Let's do that. Um, so he actually had to keep it in, and uh, I, I, I just, I absolutely love this scene, and I love everybody in it, including Rand and uh, Spock. There's a lot of nonverbal communication going on that's just really beautiful. Uhura gets to wink. I like her wink. Uhura gets to smile a lot. Let's be real. That's probably yeah. one of that is probably the most you ever see Uhura smile in those three years. Like. In that one scene, she's playful, she's happy, she's relaxed, she looks completely unchained, and she's just doing her thing. Like you, it, you, and you just don't get a lot of opportunities for any of the characters to be playful, but in particular to get that much airtime uh, and to be playful and flirtatious. And again, the chemistry between Spock and Ahura was just all the things. I love the way he, like, at first is a little bit annoyed, but then he almost gives her, like, a challenging look. Like, hey, I'm going to start playing the... Are you going to join in with me? And just kind of get... He gives her an, oh, this is how we're doing. Okay, let's see if you can keep up. (laughs) Oh, that's how you want to play this? Okay. Okay. And then Uhura doing, you know, like, a, a throwing back a drink, winking at Rand, and then 
just busting into this song that's like so sensual. I, I love it. It's so good. Agreed. I can't believe we almost lost it. I mean, it's one of those things that on our show and in general, we have a tendency to talk about how we wish things were better. It could have been way worse. <laughs> NBC didn't want this scene in here. Thank God we got this. Yeah, it's 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 good to know that they won some of the battles and we ended up getting some of this awesome material that really stands the test of time. I know the crazy thing is like you also go, man, Sean Nichols is really, really talented. Like, what are the other things that were possibly worked into this, this these scripts that were knocked out that she didn't get a chance to do? Like, just just that one part is like, you you never would have known she had a beautiful voice. You wouldn't have known she could dance either. She's just a. We get to see her as a triple threat, and it's awesome. Yeah, we have um, the Naked Time on here as well, and the Naked Time is just an overall great episode. But the reason that it's on our list is basically for a single line, and it's just single line. It's one of my favorites. It's one of the cleverest lines when Sulu is all hopped up. And he grabs Uhura and says, I'll protect you, fair maiden. And she's just got so much spirit. Sorry, neither. (laughs) (laughs) It's so clever. That is a Gene Roddenberry line that, again, he had to fight for. No kidding. And you it's one of those, if you blink it and you'll miss, you blink and you'll miss it lines, but it's just great. Like, the first time I saw this episode, I had to rewind it and be like, wait, what? Did she just say what I think she did? Holy crap, she did. It's great. <laughs> yeah, I mean, if you actually look up that quote online, um, you will, there are message boards with people who didn't get the joke. <laughs> oh, how do you not? I, I don't understand. Poor well, bastards. maybe when you were a kid, and also I think the, um, and this is why I think it's so clever, the use of the word fair. Mm-hmm. Because I feel like, at this point, we start to use the word fair in this context to just mean beautiful. But what it actually means is Which pale. is racially biased also. Yep. That's exactly, yeah. it's exactly what it was. Yes. So <laughs> I think there are some people who didn't get the maiden part of it, but I think more people didn't get the fair part of it. Sorry, oh. neither. I'm not pale and I'm not a maiden. Um, I just think it's such a clever play on words and actually very subversive. It just, even thinking about it, back to it, it makes me laugh. And her delivery is so perfect. Just so catty. It's fantastic. It's definitely <laughs> one of those. If you're watching it in a group, that's the point where you have to be like, everybody shut up! They're about to say the line! <laughs> Agreed. Maybe maybe they were just distracted because Sulu had his shirt off. I don't know. It is pretty distracting. I mean, he was I mean, he is, he is pretty distracting as a young man. I'm not Let's just not establish gonna... that it's a great nope. scene nope, all across the board right. then. Yeah. Total fan. There's a reason why when I think of the naked time, the first thing I think of is an oiled George Takei and a sword. <laughs> <laughs> I just love how big it is. I, I mean, he didn't do... <laughs> I, one, I mean, in this... <laughs> That's not what I meant. But also, like, in this episode, they originally had written him uh, brandishing a samurai sword and thinking he was a samurai. And uh, he was like, actually, I'm really interested in fencing. So how about we make me Errol Flynn? And I'm very glad they went in that direction and it rocked. Yeah, I, I think part of the conversation, as I remember it, is they said, yeah, but, but Sulu's Japanese. He's like, yeah, but I'm American. Speaking of Sulu, can we talk about Mira Mira? Can we just have that moment? Okay, so Mira Mira. It is literally one of my favorite episodes ever because as we've been talking about Ahura like standing out as one of the smarter people in the crew this is kind of where she does like, we also get to I, see her stand out as one of the most ripped yo I, oh the my six God. it's incredible I like have seen that scene I've seen the episode a billion times but I've literally have sat at work when I need to like feel really good about my day and like remember what it's like to be that much of a rock star and just replay that scene just over and over and over again. I believe when I was live tweeting, Uhura came on screen and I was like, Nichelle Nichols' abs were designed by God. Um, (laughs) This is basically how I feel about it. I think to me, this is her best moment. Because not only is she being, like, she looks great, she's being extremely sexy, but at the same time, she's also very canny. And 
I call her double agent Uhura in this, um, <laughs> where she completely plays Sulu. And think about how scary that must have been. There's yeah, absolutely. This was an episode that a lot of our Facebook people brought up. Uh, Martina said, I like how the regular Uhura was the best and quickest to adapt to the mirror universe. That means she's tough enough to survive in that shark tank and smart enough to make everyone believe she's her counterpart. And it's not easy to lie to people who are long used not to trust anyone. And uh, Blair pointed out, like you said, that she really plays Sulu without any thought for her own safety. It's really badass. Yeah, I mean, there's a moment before she goes up to the bridge where Kirk says to her, he goes, and Uhura, I need you to go up to the bridge and take a look at the communication logs. He gives her a mission, basically. And she, she's like, yeah, okay. And she starts to walk out, and then she turns to him, and she looks at him, and she's scared. Why wouldn't she be scared? She's about to walk by herself onto the bridge full of people that are clearly not good people. Um, and there's just this moment where he's like, no one else can do this. And she's like, yes, right, okay. And she really puts herself in a vulnerable position, but handles it so beautifully. Yeah, I have a lot of friends who have, have made the statement that that one episode kind of made Ohora their feminist idol. Just because it's okay to be scared, but like she rises to the occasion so seamlessly. I love when she pulls the knife on him. Mm. It's one of my favorite moments of all time. It's like, you're playing a dangerous game. She's like, so are you. <laughs> Here's that my knife. look on her face. Yeah. It's- one that I wanted to skip ahead to, if you don't mind, is um, Plato's stepchildren. Because I know uh, we were talking about the Spock and Uhura tension. And initially in Plato's stepchildren, which of course was famously the first interracial kiss between two fictional characters on TV, that uh, it was originally going to be Uhura and McCoy. And then they switched it to uh, Uhura and Kirk and Spock and Chapel. But even though it got by the network the first run, by the time they started filming, the network was flipping out. And they suggested that it should be Nimoy who kisses her instead of Shatner. And uh, Fred Freiberger, who was the new executive producer, felt really strongly that it had to be Shatner. He said, the network said, why can't it be Nimoy who kisses her instead of Shatner? I said, for the very reason you want it to be, because he's a Vulcan and it's going to be acceptable to everybody that the black girl is kissed by a Vulcan. I want it to be Shatner. It's got to be him. And uh, Nichols, uh, Nichelle Nichols said... So now I'm pissed on a whole other level and to a whole new degree. Somehow, I guess they found it more acceptable for a Vulcan to kiss me, for this alien to kiss this black woman, than for two humans with different coloring to be doing the same thing. It was absolutely ridiculous. And um, there's a really great, uh, more details on the story in These Are the Voyages about how Shatner basically was like, to hell with the network and screwed up take after take of the alternate version so that they would be forced to use the kiss. Like making a weird face at the camera or something. Yeah, actually literally crossing his eyes at the camera so they kept (laughs) running out of time. Um, So I thought that was interesting on a couple levels because I really like the uh, Uhura-Spock relationship as well, but it is interesting that, you know, later on the network was actually just like, we would prefer this than having an interracial human couple kiss. Very telling, isn't it? Yeah, and it was also interesting because Shatner is accused of being one of the people who, you know, got a lot of her earlier lines cut. Um, So it was cool that later on he was standing up against this ridiculousness from the networks. I agree, but it seems like one of the reasons why he wanted to do it is because he knew it was going to be a big moment. Yeah, there's no way he couldn't know that. Oh, for sure. I was going to say, whether he did or he didn't, I think, you know, he also, it's a 50-50 crapshoot, right? Like, it could have been a huge moment that was pinnacle and could have changed everything in history and made this big splash, or it could have been, dear William Shatner, this is the end of your career. Yeah, absolutely. We're going to replace you with Captain Pike. Goodbye. (laughs) Like, it could have been that moment. Imagine that scene with Captain Pike, though. Oh, I can actually a younger Captain Pike or it could have been Kirk was like okay there's a point where things are just ridiculous like you guys have got to stop like this is ridiculous and I hope that's what he said like I hope he got to a point where he was like this woman is an actress I have been working with her for a long time at this point 
we are with each other a ridiculous amount of time and I know her and she's a friend and no more no matter how vain I may be or come off to be it is a point where things become ridiculous I certainly hope so regardless of whether or not it was self-serving it was still just a huge freaking deal and it's really great that you got to see that on this show and he I mean it wouldn't have worked without him no it wouldn't have I, I do I do understand why you know it kind of would have been cool to have Spock do it just because they had more chemistry I think and more of a, a relationship but the other thing to keep in mind is this is the captain this is the hero of the story and so it is cool that 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 they had that moment be between her and you know the captain I think that adds some weight to it. If we're if moving on to the kiss itself and like the episode itself and what it means within the episode, I am disappointed that they had this huge moment and they made it non-consensual. Yeah, that that does mm. kind of taint the experience. There was a big deal about that. And the thing is, is when you're reading behind the scenes, you find out that a lot of the reasons why they were like, it's cool, is because it was non-consensual. They're like, they're being forced into it. And I'm like, mm, okay. I mean, that's one of the ways that they managed to get it past everything, is because they didn't want to kiss each other. And I just think that's kind of sad. Really does say something about the network's priorities, again really does. Yeah, it's really interesting reading. Um, so at the beginning, that was the main thing that the network objected to was the fact that there was, quote, enforced lovemaking. The original script actually had Uhura playing, quote, playing toesies with McCoy. Um, but Oh my, um, wow. So they were like, this, you're gonna have to get rid of this. There can't be forced uh, sexual contact. And then they said that well, okay, if you're going to have it, it has to be clear that there are not racial overtones to the dilemma. So at that point, they were like, we're okay with this, but you can't imply that race is a reason that they're being forced into it. Um, but then clearly more suits saw the script and started to flip out. I mean, you gotta make the people in the South happy. And again, look at the time frame. That was, it was a big deal. It was unfortunately still appalling to some and in some places still not legal. Yeah. And um, so, yeah, and NBC refused to spend any money on promoting the episode. So Fred Freiberger was like taking ads out from his own money to promote it. Hmm. Well, Fred Freiberger gets a bad rap, but it does seem like he was trying. And I don't think the problems of the third season can be laid at his feet. Yeah, I mean, the, certainly reading the books makes you realize, like, everything was complicated. It looks like Shatner's role, Roddenberry's role, Freiberger's role, everything in, in both, like, the gender and the racial depictions. Yeah, and, and there was probably, I mean, I won't even say probably, there was a lot of compromises. Like, mm -hmm. even to get things on air, I mean, everybody, I think, knows that this was not meant to succeed. They thought it was going to fail and it wasn't going to be the hit um, that it was. But I can only imagine being a fly in the room where you're making compromises in order to get deeper meaning and messaging into these shows and to blend in the social justice stuff that they really wanted to get displayed. Um, going through that gauntlet must have been extremely frustrating. And exhausting. Yeah, no kidding. Yeah. Another story I found interesting was in And the Children Shall Lead, which is the one where the children turn evil and kill their parents. And which then, is one of Jared's least favorite episodes of all time. I, it's like it's a lot of people's <laughs> like, favorite episodes of all time. And um, that's one where a big problem I had with it was that like the, they basically show people their fears and Uhura's fear seems to be that she's getting really like old and she looks in a mirror and she sees herself as an old woman. The worst possible thing if you're a woman. <laughs> Roddenberry actually wrote a memo to Freiberger saying, should Uhura's last two speeches be directed towards mirrors and it's ugly or towards her shocking belief that she is now dying of old age? Basically, he said, I want to protect the character Uhura and not make it appear to the audience that she is so vain that simply seeing herself as ugly would unduly unnerve her. If she's a well-disciplined crewman, it certainly might shake her up a bit, but she'd continue to do her job. So I thought that was kind of cool. And it did end up, they put changes in the script to make it her state clearly that what I'm I'm afraid of is seeing my own painful death. Yeah. Better than, oh God, there's bags under my eyes. <laughs> <laughs> 
Dear God in heaven, no. Much may I say, Michelle Nichols has really aged quite gracefully and well and looks nothing like the picture in that episode. That's one thing I always love about seeing actors aged up on TV, being able to compare them with how they actually age up in real life. Picard is a good example of that. <laughs> um, they have that episode, it's the inner light, I think, where they yeah. show him as old. Picard, not Picard, John, ah, Patrick Stewart. Um, looks like the same age. He doesn't age. He's a vampire. It's really freaky. He signed a contract with somebody somewhere. uh, (laughs) And we don't just mean Paramount. (laughs) Well, tomato, tomato, really, I guess. (laughs) My favorite example will always be Michael J. Fox in Back to the Future Part 2. He just got finer as he aged. I stand by that statement. I really do. You know what? Everybody's got their something. Um. <laughs> um, I feel like we, there are a couple other good moments to mention, but one of the ones that people cited as their least favorite moment was her mind wiping in the changeling. Because mm. it makes no sense. Yes. So the changeling, I, there are good things in this episode. Um, I think some of the themes are good, but how are you gonna have? How are you gonna have someone supposedly like wiped? Like they make it seem like her hard drive was wiped, basically. Mm-hmm. Oh, she's gonna do a first grade reader, and it's all cool. Yeah, Dylan mm-hmm. on our Facebook said, "When Nomad wipes her mind, ruined the episode for me. Had to headcanon it to her knowledge of the English language being all that got wiped." Yeah, and actually that makes more sense than what they have in the episode because she still remembers Swahili when she's learning English. So, I, I mean, that that would make way more sense, but that's not how they present it. it it's, it's weird because the episode itself, like within the continuity of the episode, it doesn't make sense. <laughs> but oh. seriously, though, like even David Gerald made fun of this. Like there's in, in These Are the Voyages, there's a whole memo that he had about how silly this was. He's like, the terribly loose end forces her to relearn everything, but fortunately she did so within a week and was back at her post in time for the next episode. So even at the time, they knew there were problems, so I'm not sure why they didn't fix it. Well, either that means she's way more competent than we already thought she was, or Starfleet has really, really lacked standards. We don't know how, we we don't know how her IQ is. She's got more cognitive skills than a Tribble's got back hairs. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Sorry, I was really late last night. That's all I can say. Oh, I'm just trying to figure out how you find the back of a Tribble. Oh, God. Uh. It's all back. It's all back. There's nothing but back hair. That's their secret. Really good conditioner. <laughs> It's their sweat, actually. They sweat conditioner. <laughs> That's how they stay so cute. The, um, the one good thing, though, is that we do get to see um, Chapel and Hura together, which is nice and rare. Mm. Um, I wish they had given them something to do that was other than Chapel teaching her English again. Mm. But um, it does mean that, you know, we actually have a Bechdel Wallace pass. Hey. Yay! <laughs> Better than nothing, again, I guess. I also, when she's about to, like, when she gets wiped, and Nomad calls her a unit, and says she's a defective unit. <clears throat> that description, blow, mm. Yeah, I mean, it's really, ah. Uh... That whole description of her was just like, oh, so this is how you think of women. Great! A Amazing. mass of conflicting impulses. But then the crew agrees with, like, I was like, What? Yeah, I I don't know. Like, there's 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 a couple ways you could play. I guess you could interpret how Spock reacts. Um, his line is that unit is a woman, and I I can see how you could read it both like not great, and then way. also like how dare you? She's not a unit. That's how I want to read it. The latter is how I want to. I want to feel like Spock is that character and it was like i am gonna stick up for the fact that you have just called her an inanimate object yeah 
Which is pretty damn nasty. Yeah. Um, but I, I don't think that it's, it's, and part of the, part of it is just that Leonard Nimoy, as Spock, is always going to be naturally, the emotions aren't going to be large. Mm-hmm. There's some interpretation that you can can do there. I I would like to um, throw my vote for he is angry, and of course he doesn't think Uhura is a unit of conflicting impulses. Um, but just in general, to have that line and have it be about the chaotic thinking of the unit and stuff be about a woman is just leaves a bad taste. I mean, it's painful. It's, it really, I mean, it's one of those moments where you go, did you compromise or did you write this? Yeah. Hmm. So that was definitely the one that came out as um, people's least favorite. Um, one of mine is from Who Mourns for Adonai. Um, and the episode in general, I'm not a huge fan of, uh, but there is a moment where Hura is underneath the console fixing it, and I've always really loved it, because I remember the first time I watched it, and I was tweeting it, and I was like, she's under this console, she's got gorgeous cat eye makeup on, and she's like, sciencing furiously, and Spock is like, yeah, you're the only person that could do this continue and it's just such a great moment of like Uhura is good at her job Mm. she is competent as hell and it's awesome yeah and just her being so competent and Spock so explicitly saying how much he trusts her to do this is really helpful um, for me and and one of my favorite moments between them. Uh, One of our Facebook comments on it was, it was one of the scenes that gave me a tiny shove toward becoming what and who I really wanted to be. And that's from Marina. And I have to agree. I mean, it's just, it's just a a lovely moment to see her, her worth as a crew member be celebrated in that way by Spock of all people. But it's also like, his his whole being is about logic. So he wouldn't just say something to say it. Exactly. And that's one of the reasons why when Spock has problematic lines, it bothers me so much more because he's supposed to be our authority, our logical. It just, it the source means so much in, in some of these mm-hmm. cases. So when he is making it seem like logically women are inferior that makes me so much more upset than when Kirk is a little bit gross. Yeah. It gives it an extra sting. Yeah, but in this scene, he's he's lovely, and they are lovely together. One of the things I'm interested in how you folks feel about is um, the Savage Curtain, which honestly is, I think, a terrible episode. But um, there is the scene at the beginning where Lincoln comes on the bridge and he calls her a charming negress and then apologizes. Oh, forgive me, my dear. I know that in my time, some use that term as a description of property. And Uhura said, Then why, but why did you use it, dude? <laughs> well, he why? apologizes. And then uh, Uhura says, but why should I object to that term, sir? You see, in our century, we've learned not to fear words. Um, I'm interested what people felt about that. So this scene for me is probably one of the biggest social justice scenes for her that really touches home to what's going on. It's it's one of those moments where the, I thought it was risque. Like it was really risque at that point in time and what was happening in the country for you to wor- use the word negress, um, which is so close to another word. Um, and when people are getting fire hosed and attacked by dogs and tear gassed for her to be able to say something so strong as you are conditioned to be who you are, but your words do nothing to me because I am stronger than those words is a really strong statement, particularly when slurs and words are being thrown every day and people are still disappearing and all the other things that are happening in the country at that time. Like I can see myself being seeing that for the first time, seeing it on TV and being, and being filled with the whole inspiration of you're right. Words 
can't hurt me. And I'm going to continue being who I am because that word doesn't define who I am. Um, and I think in, in, in my case, it took a lot of guts to do that scene. And she's right. The words of Lincoln and, and what is in all of Lincoln's writings and all his speeches are clearly not words that we use now <laughs> in 2016 and weren't words that people should have been using um, in the 1960s. Again, I think there's a couple ways you can take this. And one of them is you just articulated so beautifully in that we want to get to a place where hurtful words no longer hold us back. I, for me, it's a little more mixed in that I feel like that kind of sentiment can be twisted. So like you have, on the one hand, the very positive interpretation that you just articulated. And then I also see this argument, though, from people who just don't want to deal with it. So be like, mm-hmm. stop being so sensitive, basically. Um, see, yeah. Uhura didn't mind, you know what I mean? And I really, really want to get to a place where where those words don't have the power to hurt people. Yeah, I think that that is really the key point, is about, well, I think that the sentiment was definitely, uh, you know, a statement of power that I'm not going to let this hurt me, that it can be twisted and that you can choose to ignore the onus on the other side to be more respectful. And I definitely, I did, like I saw this quote brought up a few times when I was um, objecting to people making really racist and homophobic comments on photos of George Takei on the Star Trek.com Facebook page. So I just think it's important to kind of unpack the sentence and to talk about like the reason we're not afraid of these words is also the words don't have power anymore. You know, actually, when I'm listening to you talk about it, Jerry, you know what this makes me think of? The way that racists will use Martin Luther King Jr. Oh, God. (laughs) Oh, God. You know, they'll take some of his speeches and they'll twist the meaning. I've seen it before, but since, like, post-Ferguson, I feel like I see it even more. And it's more along the lines of, instead of listening to what his actual message was, it's more like, hey, everything's fine, let's not talk about it. It's more like pedantic word twisting, really. Well, and the other reason that it's not threatening is that she knows that it's not Lincoln's intent to use that word in a hurtful uh, way or an oppressive way. Um, But that isn't always the case. Yeah. So, yeah. Anyway, I just wanted to... I thought it was interesting. Just to chime in, like, on one, like, closing on that, it's also Lincoln. Yeah. It's the man who wrote the yeah. Emancipation Proclamation. <laughs> I think, again, and, and, and I think we've, we've talked about this um, in the choice of character that's being used. Yeah. Mm-hmm. If anyone else had said that on the show, if it wasn't Abraham Lincoln, it would be also a whole other question. We'd exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Context yeah. is very important. Plus, yeah. who can, who can uh, I mean, I don't think this episode is great. But I will never, ever, ever forget spitting out my wine when Lincoln suddenly <laughs> appeared in the sky. It was oh. like, hey, Enterprise, what's up? Yo! How you living? And then spitting out your wine again when Lincoln gets killed with a spear in the back. <laughs> <laughs> this is the magic of television, everyone! I was just like, I was like, what is happening to me right now? I think you mean what happened to the world when that episode aired. I, all I'm sorry. All I can think of is a Trident and Anchorman <laughs> right now. I'm so sorry. Like, I know I I've seen I this episode a, a million times. I think, that is making me think of Anchorman. They have that big brawl scene. <laughs> so yep. he comes, is that a Trident? That really escalated quickly. <laughs> <laughs> well, we can, um, kind of going back to Martin Luther King, we can start talking about the actual impact that Uhura had, her as a character. Um, so by now, people have probably heard the story, but I still think it's important to talk about. So Nichelle Nichols was considering leaving um, the show because she was so frustrated with, you know, her part being cut so much and she wanted to go back to Broadway and she met Martin Luther King Jr. and he talked her out of it, which is just such an amazing story. 
just that statement right there of, oh yeah, Martin Luther King Jr. came and talked this woman out of leaving a TV show. Yeah, it's mind-blowing, really. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know what I would have done. I'm I'm glad she eventually was able to talk. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's like, can you imagine this like giant of a person being like, oh, I like your show. I don't know how I would react to that. <laughs> Cry. But, I mean, the reason he wanted her to stay is because he... He wanted her to understand what her her role on TV was doing for people of color and women. And I just think that that's really lovely that we had one of these great civil rights activists understanding how much representation matters, even back in 1967 or whatever that was. The funny thing is what people don't know, like, I keep saying how much it is for women of color, but it wasn't just women of color. Like, she was the person of color on the show, period, that didn't randomly disappear or was a salt monster. <laughs> and, not a salt you know, monster. Put it on your resume. Not a, you are definitely not a salt monster. But, you know, it also speaks to just understanding what people don't realize, that imagery and representation... Um, and I kind of, I've kind of hit on this a couple times is like imaging representation is just so important, but it's not just that she was there, but it was that she created this image of what a future could look like when, and, and I love this about Gene Roddenberry's concept period. So just as a caveat is that the future projection of a utopian society where people of all races, creeds, backgrounds and species are together on one ship brilliantly navigating the stars and going boldly where no person has gone before and you know and I don't I don't know if you guys have ever thought of this concept but I I wrote a piece um very unwidely stared that talked about the fact that people of color do not exist in the future like there are literal movies from the 60s, the 50s and the 60s, where it is not one person of color in the future. The world ends and there's no people of color. And it's like, do we make it? Do we not make it? I'm not sure. But then you had a horror and it was like, oh, wait, we're there. It's cool. The we're going to make it. The show that changed the future. Yeah. It literally. I do love the way you put that, like, represented in the future and how much that means, like, the, that spirit of hope for all of us that as bad as things might be or as bad as things might get, that somewhere down the line, the human race will get their act together and solve some of these problems that are holding us back. And not only are we going to solve them, but once we solve them, we're going to go to space. And we're going to do amazing things once we are finally get rid of these problems that have plagued us. That's kind of the message of Star Trek to me and, and why I love this show so much. I couldn't have said it better. That was perfect. Absolutely. But yeah, no, it, it's, it's, really, it's really an interesting concept in that people of color just were completely erased in history and the story just hasn't been told. So to see that in the future... Man, at that time, it must have been like a beacon of hope. I can only imagine. I think it's particularly tough to find people of color in sci-fi and fantasy. And that makes yes. me really upset. Uh, sci-fi, for obvious reasons that we've kind of touched on already. But like fantasy, the absolute mind-benders of arguments that people will come up with for why you can't have people of color in fantasy is stunning. Like, oh, yeah. okay, I was on a Game of Thrones panel at Dragon Con, and um, there was this guy on it who was talking about how Sansa needed to go through what she went through, and Cersei has to walk down the streets, because those are, you know, historical precedent. I'm like, okay, so oh, where were really? the dragons? Where were the dragons in the War of the Roses? Please tell me. Like, yeah. Yeah, You can't cite historical precedent and historical reality for a fantasy series. If you can find place in your heart for dragons and, you know, giant frost monsters, you should also be able to be cool 
with people of color. So I I just find those arguments to be extremely offensive and also so silly. Okay, so we talked uh, a lot about Uhura in the original series, but when we asked for favorite moments, a lot of people brought up the animated series, actually, and the episode The Lorelei Signal. Now, we did get a chance to talk about it a bit in our Matriarchy episode, so if you want to hear us talk more about it there, you can. But the reason this came up is because Uhura gets to take command of the ship finally. Yay! Yay. Took way too long. She's fourth in command. Why is she not in command before? We don't know. But at least it happened. Now, it happened in the animated series. And it happened because all of the men were incapacitated. But she was still awesome. The point is that it happened. Yeah, Yeah, like, she basically goes to Scotty and she's like, no, you you don't have your senses. I'm taking control of the Enterprise. It's great. And, like, certainly in the other series, it never would have made sense for, like, Jordy or Bolana to, or, like, Chief O'Brien to come up and, like, I'm taking command now because the captain and first officer are out of commission. It's like, you kind of need your engineer doing engineering. Can you imagine if O'Brien had done it? It would have been like, go back to your basement. (laughs) (laughs) There's a console down there that has to explode in your face. (laughs) Don't you have to go stand alone for hours and hours <laughs> on end? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but it is a good episode, and it is a fun one, and it is amazing to see Uhura be in charge, and I just wish we had seen it more, and I really wish we had seen it in the original series. Yeah. Yeah. Is there anything else anybody wanted to add before we wrap up? Rock you like an Uhura cane! <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. And I'm done. All right, good. Um, on that note, um, thanks so much for listening to our episode about Uhura. Uh, but this is just one of the many topics being discussed on Trek.fm. So here's a quick look at some of the other things you may have missed elsewhere on the network. Previously on Trek.fm, the Orb. The Wadi, a fun-loving race from the Gamma Quadrant, arrive at DS9 eager to play a game with Cisco and the crew. One that appears to be a matter of life and death. All right, so are we moving along, Matthew? Oh, we're moving along. <laughs> the ready room. He's carrying in the lamb chop sock puppet <laughs> saying, she stayed at her post. <laughs> While Charlie Horse ran. <laughs> <laughs> While Charlie Horse ran. <laughs> <laughs> to the journey. My last one, I think I might get a little bit of grief from you. Uh, workforce part one. Oh my god! Oh. I I know. Uh, hey, I did not make fun of Fairhaven. That's because Fairhaven's good and workforce is boring. Oh, bite me! Commentary: Trek stars. You know, you you come up with something stupid because of some joke that someone said and someone else said, and then all of a sudden you're doing a uh, tournament of movies which J.J. Abrams produced to determine which one is the crappiest. The 602 Club. We start getting hints of Thor. We start getting hints of Cap. We start getting hints of the entire Avengers crew, and we get Black Widow. So, I mean, Iron Man 2, considering how maybe that's not my favorite movie of the MCU, really does set up a lot of what is to come. Literary Treks. You know, visually, to me, this is one of my favorite eras of Star Trek. You know, those monster maroon coats they're wearing, and they're just absolutely gorgeous. And, you know, I've a lot of people talked about wanting to get a Captain Sulu Star Trek series, and one of the big reasons for me that that would be so great is to see this era played out visually on a regular basis. Women at Warp. Her, her voice as a computer voice has become so iconic that when Google started developing what is now known as Google Now, that, that personal assistant you can speak to, um, they had initially codenamed it Google Majel. That's so cool. Isn't that awesome? Meta Trex. And I kind of had the jingle in my head, you can be a winner at the game yes. of life. And I was trying to think of the Star Trek version of that. You know, you, you, you can be a winner of the poker game of life on the Enterprise. Uh, <laughs> on the it Inter- didn't really roll off the tongue. So It was great until you added on the Enterprise. Melodic Treks. The reason why I think Brian Wrightsell would be a more plausible choice is because he has worked with Fuller in the past. They worked together on Hannibal. He scored that series, all 39 episodes. The neat thing about Brian Wrightsell's music is it's more of a sound design than it is a score. Saturday Morning Trek. 
one of the characters is sizably larger than the than the other. So he's just I don't... closer to the camera, Aaron, obviously. But he's actually behind the other person. <laughs> he's a giant. <laughs> Wait, then he doesn't need a laser cutter. He can just lift the hatch up with it. <laughs> Go down and get it. Okay. Arr. Continuing mission. Yeah, and of course, another great thing is when it's it's all finished and you look at it and go, yeah, we made that together. Yeah, that's that's one of the greatest moments. And people respond to it and say, oh, that's that's pretty well made. The effects are great. The actors are are great, uh, even though they're Dutch trying to speak English, right? <laughs> and that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. We also wanted to let you know about the Trek.fm Patreon. Trek.fm is a listener-supported network. You can help us keep the Star Trek discussion coming by pledging a donation at patreon.com slash trek.fm. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash trek.fm. Every little bit helps keep Women at Warp and the other Trek.fm podcasts up and running. So once you're done with the show, again, please consider hopping over to patreon.com slash trek.fm. Thanks so much for joining us. Uh, where can people find you, Angelique? Uh, yeah, so you can find me on Twitter at Angelique Roche. That's A-N-G-E-L-I-Q-U-E-R-O-C-H-E. Um, you can find me at on Instagram at A underscore G-E-L-I-Q-U-E. And then I am a contributor at Black Girl Nerds. Uh, and you can find my column blurdy politics uh, and i also write about doctor who every now and then on a couple different spots and a couple different podcasts awesome grace where pe- where can people find you on the internet people can find me on twitter at bonecrusherjank or they can read my writing on the myth Koreans blog and jara you can find me at jara penguin on twitter which is j-a-r-r-a-h penguin or at trekkiefeminist.tumblr.com. And I'm Andy. You can follow me on Twitter at First Time Trek, where I'm live tweeting my first time watching Star Trek. And thanks so much for listening, everybody. And Angelique, thanks so much for coming. You were amazing. Oh, yes. my pleasure. You guys rock. All right. Thanks, everyone. At first, his look could hypnotize, and then his touch would barbarize. His alien love could victimize and rip your heart from you. And that's why female astronauts, oh, very female astronauts, we terrified and overwrought to find what he will do. <laughs>